Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Happy 2023. Season six is kicking off, and we got a real cool guest sitting on the other side of our Zoom, hanging out in East Coast, Canada, which we are going to be hanging out in, in June, right? It's going to come so fast. Oh, I'm excited. It's already January. I'm excited. It is exciting. Hey, everyone. It's Amanda, and we've got Ashley talking to us from, I want to say New Brunswick. Am I right, Ashley? Are you Sounds in New right. Brunswick? Right to yeah. Me. <laughs> and uh, Ashley is a registered massage therapist, but she also has um, an extensive background in uh, different things. So she's got a bachelor's degree in anthropology and master's in archaeology. And she is now uh, working as a registered massage therapist slash death doula. And we have had a couple of people on who have done this work, but I don't know that anybody, I don't know, we've talked to anyone who's dove into it to the depths that Ashley has, where um, she's now going to be teaching courses. And that is uh, part of what we have her on today is to talk about some of the things that she does in her practice, but also what she's going to be teaching us at the Canadian Massage Conference Halifax 2023 in June, because she is one of our speakers there. So Ashley, thanks so much for hanging out with us on January the 2nd, 3rd. Where are we here? It's a a Wednesday. (laughs) It's a Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. It's Tuesday. The third third day of January. The third day of January. Nobody knows. We're still in holiday mode. Exactly. We've got the uh, holiday hangover thing going on. Brain's slow to turn on. Oh, 100%. Like I said good morning to her when we sat down. Guys, it's 1 p.m. You know what? In in, in our defense, we've had a... We've had a really rough December. We've, we've had a month. I mean, we're talking to a death doula today. We've, we've dealt with a lot of death this yeah, month. Yeah. Oh, have you really? Yeah. We'll, we'll get into okay. it. Or maybe we'll, I yeah. don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see we'll, what happens. We'll, we'll, we'll see roll. Exactly. Yeah, it is definitely a very interesting conversation to be having after uh, having two uh, rather sudden, uh, one incredibly tragic and one very uh, meaningful death in our families in uh, the past month. So it's it's been a month. So I'm not even, I'm mm-hmm. not even certain I, I'm going to know what day it is for at least another week or so. It's been days. It's been days. It's been days. We just, uh, I just recently had my father put in the ground. Okay. Uh, uh, not even a week ago, actually. No. Days, days ago. Just days ago. Yeah. Yeah. After, after an illness or sudden? You don't have to answer that. Well, I'll probably speak about it a little bit, but it's, it was, yeah. it, it was unexpected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. unexpected. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's been, um, I mean, I nothing to the extent of, of your situation, but there was, I have close, close friends, so close that they're basically family. Uh, they went through a one year anniversary of their best friend passing uh, on New Year's Eve. And then they also lost their uh, beloved, very, very beloved family dog. Um, and we can, we can talk about that too, because mm. there's people experience grief in different ways and there's a lot of comparison that ends up happening with grief, but as we know, people are individuals and it's all relative. So grief is grief is grief. And, and that's the way that that works. Yeah. Well, before we get yeah. into any of that discussion, Ashley, um, for people listening, can you give a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into massage therapy and specifically how you decided you wanted to focus your practice on end of life care? And then we'll uh, we'll jump right into all of the things that you do for the the patients and clients that you see. So that I always struggle with that question because it's on any podcast I've done so far, it's always where we start. And it's actually kind of a long story. Um, I got time. <laughs> 
<laughs> I got time. <laughs> so I guess where I would start, where I've started before is I come from an immigrant family. Um, my Both of my parents are Polish. They actually met in Toronto. They immigrated separately from Poland in the 80s. Uh, they met in Toronto. They moved to the States, had me and my sister in Florida. And then we moved back up to Canada again when I was essentially a toddler. Um, the reason why that ties in with uh, my, I guess, my my interest in death, death work, death care work, is that growing up, I really didn't have any strong examples of uh, mortality mm. happen within the family at all. Like my, my two parents are relatively good health, um, and have been pretty much their entire lives. Uh, my sister's healthy. She's one year younger than me. I'm healthy. Um, any kind of situation where death happened, happened overseas back in Poland with my extended family, that's where they all are. So I was never, I was never a participant in the nitty gritty that happens around death and dying. Mm -hmm. It was always, uh, you know, I'd, if my, I'll give the example of my grandmother passing away. So my grandmother passed away. We flew to Poland, um, after most everything was taken care of. You know, I was really not part of any kind of discussion surrounding that we got there. We attended the, the funeral and then went to the, uh, gathering that happened right after. And that's pretty much it. There wasn't much else around it, right? So I wasn't set up to be resilient to death at all. Uh, and then, so with the exception of a couple instances here and there where, you know, we lose a family pet or something like that, maybe something, you know, that did provide me a, a little bit of of uh, of experience, but it's not the same. <laughs> it's just not the same. So then in high school, I was um, volunteering at the Moncton Hospital. Uh, one of my favorite jobs was doing the book cart. So I would just take around a book cart with all, all this literature on it to any patients that wanted a new book. Um, and what happened was I was I was moving along and I happened to look over and I recognized a face. I, rec I recognized one of the patients there. and. If we go back in time several months, um, my family, had, my parents had told me that one of my neighbors had gotten sick with cancer. And uh, it was a pretty quick decline. It was stage four. And, you know, they they mentioned it because it was our next door neighbor. He was always super sweet, Mr. Fisher. He'd bring us, He his entire backyard was just raspberry bushes. Mm. And every year he'd bring us just pints and pints and pints of raspberries. So he was always really kind to my sister and I. We never had a close emotional connection or anything like that, but I always really liked him. And so because I didn't have a practice or a resilience to the topic of mortality, my parents told me that he was sick in hospital and I tucked it away. I was just like, nope, don't know what to do with that. Compartmentalized it, lock and key in my brain. And then I shoved it aside and I didn't think of it again. And that was my way of coping with that information. Um, for better or worse. So then fast forward several months, I'm at the hospital. I look over, I recognize his face, but it he was just in a completely different physical state than the last time I saw him. And 
you know, that should have been something that was kind of predictable to me, but it's, it was just, no, it, I went cold from head to toe. It was one of those moments where life really smacks you upside the the head and you learn, you integrate a lot of information in a very short amount of time. Like the moment for me was incredibly palpable. Like I can still, I can still feel it when I recall it. I can, I remember the color of the walls and I remember the way his face appeared and uh, it really left a, a lasting impression on me. And there was also a ton of shame that went along with that moment because I, the way that I reflect when I look back on it is I was so afraid of death that the only thing I could do is carry on. I just walked on. I couldn't go into that room. And I, I, I mean, I, I could, I did the best that I could with the tools that I had at the time, but the way that I interpreted it for a very long time is that it was a massive failure of my humanity that I could have gone in there and that I just chose not to, cause I was too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, that was a really hard lesson. It was, I carried that for years afterwards. I struggled with that for years. I didn't tell any, it was so bad that I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, and then it manifested in a lot of death related anxiety. I just, that was, so that would have been in grade 12. So the next year I went to my bachelor's degree at Ben Olsen. And I was by that point in time, so afraid of my own mortality that when we talked about any, any topic related to mortality within any of my classes, and there were, there were, they came up a lot because I was in a arts degree and death is something that humans have pondered for you know, our entire existence and the arts do a really good job of helping us kind of uh, digest the topic, right? So we talked about mortality a lot in my undergrad. And I was so freaked out by it that anytime it was brought up, I would pretty much like white knuckle my chair and essentially come pretty close to having a panic attack every time. And it's funny when I look back on that now, because I that felt to me like something that I would never overcome. And now when I look back and reflect on it, that was my, that was me closing one door and opening another. Like that was my opportunity to finally handle my hangups that I had around mortality and existential questions. And the fact that we're all going to die one day, I had the choice of moving past that because it had come up for me so uh, strongly, so profoundly. Were your hangups more like when you say you were white knuckling it when the, the topic of death came up in classes and things, mm-hmm. were your hangups like fear of your own mortality? Was it, it was it discomfort and having to deal with other people? Was it, was it all of it? Like w- what were you feeling when, when these topics would come up? Like you said, you're on the verge of a panic attack, but is this fear mm-hmm. or is this just like discomfort and you just want it to go away because you don't know what to do with it? It was it was like a dread. It was like a a sincere, all-encompassing, feel it in every cell in my body kind of dread. Uh, the same dread that I, the cold feeling that I got from head to toe when I saw Mr. Fisher that day, it was like that replaying itself over and over and over. And I think my biggest problem at the time was that I, I what I realized in the moment that I saw him is the lesson that life doesn't owe you anything. He didn't think he was going to get cancer several months before. And then in the moment that I saw him, I, I realized that none of us have any guarantees. We we think we do, right? Um, but in fact, we don't. And there's not really any way to predict 
And I had such control issues around that growing up that just in general, and I don't, I tend not to like unpredictability It's just wired within my personality. So if you mix my personality with life experience, with uh, feeling at the time, like I couldn't talk to anybody, it was just a perfect storm of anxiety. You know, it just, you know, it just popped into my head, an Instagram mm. story you put up of your mirror with post-its all over it prepping for a class. I wouldn't say that you have control issues. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it still comes up for me. It still comes up for me. Yeah. It's going to be something that I, it's much better now than it, than it ever, um, had been before. And I would say I'd, I'd have control issues in very specific circumstances. Mm. Um, I don't have control issues globally over everything, but definitely with anything related to a project, I want to know well in advance yeah. or a podcast. I need a couple months time to prepare. Right? It's true. just we, a we mentally this, fathom that I'm going to be doing quite it. some time, probably back in November, I mm. would say. We yeah. This. yeah. 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 And that's just, I mean, I, I, I would love to be the type of person that just flows with everything, but that's going to be a lifelong lesson and a lifelong practice of mine. And a lot of ways I'm much better than I used to be. But uh, for me, I know it's going to be something that, you know, I have to practice. Flowing with life is something that I practice. Sorry, I cut you off. You were, you were talking about, you know, finally being able to deal with this, these things that you had compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what started happening was I was taking a lot of anthropology courses and I really fell in love with that specific subject. I think because I think because I'm I'm such a mix of things like my identity growing up was really kind of scattered. I mean, I've got two Polish parents, but I was born in the states and I don't really tell many people that too often and and even if I were to say in the states the states globally don't like Florida so it just kind of feels like <laughs> you know and then growing up I I was raised on the east coast so am I a maritimer am I Polish uh, I mean I have an American passport so I guess in some ways I must be American but I I just I didn't have a clear category to place myself into and what I loved about anthropology is that it gave me a window to look at how different we all are. There are so many hundred thousands of cultures out there. And when we live within our own, we become very myopic. Like we we think that the way that we do things is the way that all things are done always mm-hmm. in all circumstances. And anthropology really opened my eyes up to the fact that no, we're we're one tiny example of the way that things are done in the world, which includes the way that people look at death and dying, and mortality, and if there's life after death, and how you're supposed to prepare bodies for, uh, you know, funeral arrangements or processions. Is a celebration of life better than, you know, the traditional kind of Catholic mourning that I was raised in? Um, We can really make our experience around death what we want it to be, a lot of the time. Obviously, sometimes no. But I realized that the the sooner in advance I started contemplating how much control, there's the key word, how much control I have over the way that I move through and experience the process of both living and dying, then that's going to make me feel pretty much as comfortable as I could possibly feel with the fact that my life will end at one point. And that's when I started, that's when I started calming down. So this would have been, I graduated, I mean, I'm I'm 35 now, it's 
2023, I graduated from my undergrad in 2010, right? So it's, I started in 2006. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's been a long time now that I've been thinking about death. It hasn't been, I got my uh, death doula certifications from three different institutions over the last two years when the pandemic started is when I started uh, taking those death doula courses, understanding that at some point I'm going to weave what I've learned over the years into my practice as a massage therapist. Um, but the death doula certifications were more recent to me. That formal training was more recent. Mm-hmm. My life experience training I've started doing since 2005 went with the moment with Mr. Fisher, my neighbor. Wow. It's a long, I, and in there I got a master's degree and everything. It's, it's a whole long thing. All these other things. Well, I'm, I do want to get into like how you go from a master's in archaeology to deciding to become an RMT. But I I want to just sort of go back to that moment with Mr. Fisher. Like you're saying it's, you remember the color of the walls. You remember everything. I was trying to think like, have I ever had a moment like that where it, something stuck with me so profoundly that changed, Mm -hmm. that changed the way I thought about things or changed the direction of things. And I was having trouble thinking of that. And so I just, I, I wanted to ask yeah. Mark, like, have you ever had a moment like that? Not that I can think of offhand. No, I I just kept thinking, like, has there been eh. anything like that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, because my folks are old. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then therefore my grand, my grandparents were really old. So I lost my grandparents, like, when I was really young. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had been around that. I'd experienced that a lot. Like I, I remember vivid. I can remember this, like vividly, the phone call that my mother got when her father died, mm-hmm. and it was just like me and my mom in my parents' bedroom, and it was just like we were both bawling uncontrollably. Like I remember that kind of stuff. Yeah, I have mm-hmm. very vivid memories of all four of my grandparents passing because I mean, t- three out of four. I was older, but my my grandfather passed when I was probably about six um, on my dad's side. But I remember that. I remember attending the funeral. I remember the reactions of my aunts. Like that stuck with me. Like, I don't know that I felt overwhelmingly sad at six. I don't think I fully understand what was going on. But I remember watching the adults in the room and one of my aunts just like sobbing uncontrollably, like couldn't keep herself together. I I remember feeling really sad that day that my, my, my mother found out her father died my grandfather died i remember like the same way that our five-year-old yeah she's really sad like i i i can identify with 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 what she was feeling i don't know yeah i don't know that i understood it at six and then in my the second grandparent i lost it was my mother's mother and i was in high school and you know when you were talking about like compartmentalizing grief specifically I remember I I lived in the basement at the time I mean I lived in the basement my bedroom was in the basement because <laughs> I was a teenager and wanted to be separate from the rest of my family and I remember walking up the stairs uh, to go towards our kitchen and my dad was coming down the stairs so we met like in the stairway and he said uh, I was just coming down to tell you that your your mother's mother passed away. Like he said it even weirdly. He didn't say your great. He said your mother's mother passed away. And as she had been really sick and it was not totally unexpected. And I remember just going, Oh, okay. And then carrying on. And I went to school that day. Like this was a woman I was super close with. She raised me for like the first five years of my life, super close with her. 
But in that moment, I was like, I don't know what to do with this information. I don't know how to talk to my mom. I don't know how to deal with my mom because she was probably so sad. So I was like, okay. And I just carried on, got ready for school and went to school. Have you ever tried to stop and figure out why there are ones that hit you hard and why there are ones that just, just, you just brush off? Like I, I had, I have a friend who I've known since I was four years old. We, uh, how old am I now? Four. We're on forty-three years of friendship, and he had an older brother who, who, who died very suddenly, and that hit me really hard. Yeah, he was super. And young. but I've had other people, in, you know, friends and their fathers and, and parents and stuff, have passed away. And it never, it never hit me until that. That one really just hit me hard and I never really stopped to try to think about why I probably should have actually, but I never really stopped to try to figure out why that one was so difficult. I think, and I'll let Ashley weigh in cause she probably has more insights to this, but I mean, when you're to answer your question, you ever stop and think about why some hit you harder than others? I don't know that that's the case. I think it's how well I can deal with the situation. I think it's a coping thing for me. Like, so for example, I didn't, I don't think I brushed off my grandmother's death. I think it was like, I can't deal with this. So I put it away. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But in, in terms of um, your friend's uh, brother passing, I mean, we were already together at this point. And I, if you remember, I had to leave that funeral. I was, I was just a mess because this was a person that was barely older than we were. And just, had a heart attack and died like zero warning. He had a wife, he had children. I shook his wife's hand and I ran out of the funeral home. I just couldn't handle it. And I couldn't, Mm -hmm. I couldn't, there was nobody there that I really knew. This was, you know, this was Mark's friends and Mark's family. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I can't, I can't talk to these people. So Mm -hmm. I was somehow not able to, to lock that one away. I had to leave. Yeah. I do think that uh, a lot of, the way that we struggle around death is related to the the context of the death happening. So if a person is, uh, you know, at the end of my grandfather passed away at 106, you know, so he was ready to go for 10 years when he was around, when he was in his mid nineties, he started talking about how he, he wanted to die. You know, he didn't have any friends left over at 95. His wife had just left as well. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the vitality that we have in our lives is related to the kinds of relationships that we have. You know, you, you get a lot of moments of joy and connection. We're we're neurobiologically wired to each other, right? The the way that the way that we interact each other has an impact on our physiology. So imagine that all of a sudden at 95, you've lost everyone and you're isolated. So he he was ready to go. He didn't want to live anymore. And he was really um he was really open about that. Um, and so then we watched him in a sense suffer for the fact that he was too old to feel connected to anybody anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. He suffered for, for 10 years with the life that he had because Mm -hmm. the quality of, of his life had declined, even though his health hadn't not really. So we were almost, um, what's the word relieved. We were relieved when he finally did pass away because we knew that it was something that he was ready for. Yeah. So processing that death was a lot easier for everybody because we knew that he was ready. But if you have a situation where a young person passes away from a heart attack and they've got their entire lives to look forward to, 
you know, the less that the big lesson for me was that we we don't we're not owed that life. We kind of walk around with blinders on, thinking that those things don't happen, and certainly not to us, because we're looking forward to the life that we're going to live. And then when life's or death rather smacks you upside the head with something like that, you, you're just not prepared for it. There's no context for it. And it yeah. makes it a lot more difficult to process that sort of thing. And it is a scary realization that we aren't owed. We're not owed a future. That's every single day that we live on this planet. Um, ideally, we'll live it to the fullest because we don't have any guarantees. Yeah, And that that used to be something that really freaked me out. It was the lack of unpredict- unpredictability that freaked me out. But now over over the amount of work that I've done around mortality, I'm, I'm much more at ease with that. I've, I found, I found a way to hold pretty softly (laughs) the, the fact that we really don't have anything promised to us. I can hold that gently at the same time that, you know, I make plans for my future. And at the same time that I understand that those plans might not happen, but I'm happy both of those things can exist. And that's a, that's one of the major things that irritates me the most about the binary that we exist in in our culture because this isn't true to every single culture. Right? The way that we exist in the in the west is there is life or death. There's not life and death. Every single second that goes by we come a little bit closer to our death. We're also living at the same time. It's a paradox, right? It's for me it, it makes much more sense to look at Pretty much everything in life is a, a paradox. Like how how can a person both have grief and joy at the same time? We all do it though. Mm-hmm. We're all able to hold both at the same time. It's just we have no practice of it in the West. But it is practiced in a lot of indigenous cultures. They they talk, they start teaching kids at a young age that there's a finality to things, right? In the West, I can I've talked to a lot of people now. They they talk about how. As kids, they were a lot of children, and actually, Amanda, you talked about it a little bit already. A lot of us as kids, when someone passes away, were declined the opportunity to ask questions because the adults around us are too afraid or they think it's not an age-appropriate conversation to have with a child that someone has died. And then we deprive that child of a lot of context. It, It probably would have helped you. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it probably would have helped you to understand why everybody was so upset around you. And you can deliver that information in an age-sensitive way, but to 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 decline that conversation altogether is a mistake. Yeah, I felt it was important for us, like with Mark's father passing, I felt it, that's their grandfather. Like I wanted them to be there. I wanted them to understand. I wanted them to ask questions. And they've sort of taken turns like sort of accepting it and understanding it like okay we won't see him anymore and then moments of being really sad which is to be expected right but we didn't really we didn't hide anything from them when you know the minute we found out that what the outcome was going to be we told them what was going to be happening like I didn't want I didn't want there to be surprises I didn't want them showing up to a funeral with a bunch of crying family members and not understanding why everybody's crying and Mm -hmm. I mean I know some people might not agree with me but I also didn't want them missing their grandfather's funeral I don't think that's fair either that they don't get any kind of goodbye to him right Mm -hmm. absolutely 
Yeah. That is in all of the death doula courses that I've taken so far, they dedicate because it is it is working with children and mortality and death and finding a sensitive way to to talk about that with kids. It's 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 uh sorry, it's its own uh kind of death care work. And it's not an area that I specialize in, but having been through death care courses, uh death doula courses, we do spend some time talking about um the fact that kids aren't dumb, you guys, turns out they're actually they have a lot of they're perceptive, right? Kids are really they are good at figuring out that something is afoot. Something's going on. They are. They always know. And yeah, they know. They know. And for us to for us to pretend like that's not happening with them is oh man, I I'm trying not to come across as judgmental for instances where it does happen because I do fundamentally believe that everybody does the best that they can with what they had at the time. But you open up a door for those kids to make sense of their experience in a way that isn't maybe as helpful as it could be to them long-term, right? What happens if in the absence of you providing the context, they start developing this huge fear around loss or death or grief, Yeah, right? Because all they know is that everybody around them is sad. And then whether or not you tell them, they're going to fill in the blanks themselves, so you might as well try to impart some sort of wisdom around that in an age-appropriate way so that they're not filling the blanks in with something that doesn't serve them in the end. Yeah, I want them to understand everything. I mean, it's it's trendy these days in parenting circles to make sure, you know, kids understand their feelings and they learn how to feel their feelings and dealing with emotions. So it wouldn't, I say it's trendy because that's what, you know, people talk about now versus, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, and it was like, we don't, we don't talk to our kids about their feelings. But it, why would death be excluded from that? It It is a reality. And like you said, everybody's got a finite number of days on the planet. Nobody knows how many days that is. So it doesn't make sense to me for kids to not be prepared for something that at some point is is going to affect them. And I'd rather them not be smacked in the face with it. I'd rather them have had some sort of experience. And like you said, Ashley, you didn't have any, right? So seeing your neighbor as a teenager really, really affected you because you, you hadn't had to deal with anything like that. And um, I want to bring it back to, you know, grief for a second. So you talked about comparing grief. That's another thing too, is like, I think, um, even though dealing with, um, like you said, you've almost felt a sense of relief um, for your grandfather because he had been ready to die for a decade. Um, I had a similar scenario with my mom's dad. My grandfather, he passed when he was 92. But uh, if you recall from earlier, I said my my grandmother, his wife, she passed in her late 60s. So he was alone for a long time. And slowly, as your grandfather did, he was losing, you know, his, his siblings, his friends. And by the time he was in his late 80s, he was done. Like he would tell <clears throat> us, I would call him and say, how are you? And he'd say, still alive, but like not in a happy way. It was, I'm still alive. I'm still here. And he was ready. He was ready to go. So when he passed away, I also think I understand that sense of relief that like, okay, he doesn't have to keep living where he doesn't want to live anymore. Um, 
but there was still grief. And it wasn't any easier really to deal with the grief just because I knew this was like the right thing. Like it was the, the grief was still there versus like, you know, the death I experienced in my family in December. Um, at the beginning of the month, I lost someone very tragically um, and she was incredibly young. And you would think that that would be just like so much harder to deal with. And I mean, it, it was in the sense that it, I would, I was still going through the motions of like trying to make sense of it, even though you can't make sense of it because like you said, you don't, nothing is owed to you. You never know when things are going to happen. But the grief factor was sort of the same. I don't know if that makes sense. Like it, it was sort of the same as dealing with somebody who you maybe could feel like, okay, they had a good life and now it's over versus like this person's life was taken from them. The grief still existed in both scenarios. Absolutely. Yeah. And it always, it always will really. I think that in, in the, I don't know if you guys have ever taken any psychology courses um, in the past. So I find that a lot of people have dabbled in psychology courses in university, even though if it's, even though it's not like a major or minor, they end up going into, I know a lot of people that as an elective have, have chosen it. I have a minor in psychology. Do you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you remember talking about the five stages of grief? Yeah. The way that even when I went through my psychology courses uh, in my undergrad, I mean, that was a long time ago now, but I, the way that the inter information got integrated in my mind was that there are five stages of grief and they're considered to be quite linear, linear, sorry, with acceptance being the last phase of everything. Well, that has been completely thrown out. Yeah. It's just, it's been completely thrown out. So now we're much more, the conversation is much more around, um, you know, why have we pathologized grief? People talk about there being a normal way to grieve and an abnormal way to grieve. Well, that's the way that we used to think of it. Um, it turns out that's not helpful. Turns out that pathologizing a way that a person grieves is not, you know, why is that the rhetoric? A person grieves the way they grieves. Why is that being pathologized? Yeah. Are there instances where maybe seeking some help or some counseling might be a good idea to help you kind of unravel the tangled ball of yarn that is grief? Absolutely. Certainly. But for a person to walk around thinking that there's something abnormal about the way that they're feeling because they've lost someone important to them. I'm not sure that that's helpful. I'm 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 a distance away from Psych 101 in my first year. What are the five stages? Top of my head, uh, I remember the acronym being DABDA. So it would be denial, anger, yeah. bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So now what we talk about is that you can cycle in and out of any number of those throughout the rest of your life. And it's not always going to, um, it might not always feel as fresh as it does when you're on the heels of loss, but certainly in the future, say you're, you know, say you, say you lost, I'm not sure, say as an example, say you lost your wife and then in the future you meet someone again. And you start thinking to yourself, oh, I wonder if this connection is going to be as close as the way that it used to feel with my ex or my my uh, the, my wife that passed away, right? That that has a tendency to bring up a sense of loss again because you're like, that thing that I used to have is no longer here. I'm trying to do it a different way now, but what happens if I don't find a similar sense of connection, right? So there's we we tend to uh, replay 
uh, in, in these really foundational, almost milestone moments throughout life, weddings, um, graduations, you know, a kid learning to drive a car for the first time. If we get, if we feel that a person who has died is not there to witness that life running its course, then it can bring up another layer of, of the, uh, the five stages of, of grief. It's just not, it's not linear, linear in the same way that, that we were trained that it is. So it's definitely not. And again, just watching people around me sort of like cycle in and out of these things. And I feel like some of them sometimes are happening at the same time and, you know, can be one minute feeling absolutely angry. The next minute there can be acceptance, then there can be depressed. Like it's, yeah, you just go in and out of everything. And I remember saying to one of my family members, because, you know, she said to me, I'm sorry, I'm six different people in a day. And I just reminded her, like, you don't have to apologize. Like you're dealing with something unbelievable right now. And you're dealing with it how you're dealing with it. And I'm not judging you for how you're dealing with it. But maybe that person doesn't also recognize that it's normal to experience all of these different things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you might feel that any one of those things and you might feel like that's a really inappropriate thing to be feeling. Is that normal for me to feel like that? Yeah. So, you know, even though they're not linear, I mean, it's important that someone recognizes that all of these things are a possibility and they're all quite normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where the conversation around how different cultures teach mortality is important because we don't get to practice death a lot here or the way that we practice it isn't uh, conducive to individual people feeling like they're uh, like they're in a sense whole as they're moving from like our sense of identity gets so fragmented when we lose people um, a lot of the time, but in different cultures, it's, it's so baked in to their everyday life, to the way that they talk about nature, to the practices and the rituals and the ceremonies that they have around life and death. It's not, again, in, in their cultures, it's life and death. It's not life or death. And in our Western culture, it's, there's something very antiseptic about the way that we consider living and dying in the way that we're trained culturally, that just, it doesn't reverberate as the best way to do things at all. You know, a lot, there's a lot of resilience that happens in indigenous uh, knowledge systems, indigenous people. Absolutely. They struggle and they suffer obviously with death and dying. Nobody is, uh, nobody is completely um, free from the suffering involved in death and dying or the struggle at least because struggling and suffering is not the same thing in my mind. Um, But they have the way that they talk about it is that when they pass, they're one with everything. They've gone back to source, right? They talk about it in a way that it's like, we in our physical reality don't have access to you anymore, but you've gone on to something that is like a hum throughout the reality of life like that. And in fact, that's how they talk about drums, for example. So uh, drums are supposed to be representative of the heartbeat of life, right? So they find these ways of considering these existential questions and it's weaved into their everyday practices. But for us in the West, it's like we're either dealing with life or we're dealing with death when it comes. We don't have a practice or a rhetoric around it 
or a narrative around death in, in a in a way that is as maybe healthy as we could. And I think that a lot of what happened, um, at least with the way that the healthcare system developed is because in the 1920s, we started talking about health in the context of health ideally is the absence of disease, right? That's it. That's the way that we consider health. I have met a lot of Indigenous people in my uh, anthropology work in the past. And they talk about how even if you have a diagnosis that might shorten your life, you can still practice wellness. You can still practice health. But the way that we talk about it in our culture is like, you're either healthy or you're not. You're either alive or you're not, right? You're either grieving or you're not. And over there, it's just, it's it's considered differently. It's considered very differently. Is it that there's a there's a deeper spirituality in indigenous cultures. That's a part of it. That's a part of it. I would say they also have, um, they tend to have more of a sense of a community around them. Yeah. Um, they stick pretty close together. And I, I mean, I'm talking about different cultures throughout uh, the world, mm-hmm. not just the ones that we would be more familiar with, right. uh, within Canada, but there definitely seems to be a, there seems to be a uh, responsibility to each other mm-hmm. and, and as you know, the, the health of me as an individual is linked to the health as my community of my community. So there is an interconnectedness that they tend to carry with themselves that we don't so much carry in the West. It's very, we're very individualistic yeah. in the West. Yeah. And spiritual spirituality does tie in with that. It's part of the reason why I like death care work as much as I do is because you're at the core of it. You're talking about humanity, right? And I could talk about humanity until I'm blue in the face. That's one of my favorite topics is the fact that we are all interconnected. We think that we're not, and we're trained to believe that we're not in the West because everything's hustle and grind culture. And, you know, success means you make as much money as you can and, um, you know, it might mean that you have a family, two kids, ideally a boy and a girl and, you know, white pick a fence, all that. And it's just not, it's just such a, it's just such a specific way to look at life that is not, it's, it's not shared across yeah, all cultures. I definitely agree that the, the interconnectedness is definitely what's missing in a lot of um, cultures dealing with things such as death. So, you know, when you were talking about indigenous cultures and it being sort of like part of their training, I was thinking, well, doesn't religion sometimes cover that? And I, I guess this, in some ways, like certain religions can bring some sort of like um, comfort to people when it comes to dealing with things like death about, you know, what happens to people, you know, you're talking about going back to source. So like, for example, I was raised Catholic. And so it was okay, this person's, you know, their their soul is not dead, their physical body isn't here. But, you know, they're, they're gonna live forever in heaven. And you know, that was sort of like the, the comfort that we had in terms of our, our religion. But like you said, we still don't have this, this community, you know, like, yes, some people are involved in their church or whatever. But at the end of the day, majority of people in, in the society that we live in are thinking about 
their routine. Like I said to you when we sat down here, I don't even know what day it is. I'm back at work and whatever. Because it's just, you get up, you do what you have to do. And there isn't really that sense of community. And, you know, after the, the month that we've had in December, sure, right now, we're a little more connected with family and, you know, reaching out, seeing if anyone needs things and whatever. But like, how long will this last before we all go back to just living the way we were living? Yeah. Um, there is, there is this researcher, her name's, uh, Lisa Miller. She's a PhD. I think she's a neuro, she's either a neuropsychiatrist or a neuropsychologist. And I can't remember right now, which it is, but she studies through a scientific lens. She took a scientific lens and she pointed it at spirituality. And what's really fascinating is that she was able to map out the neural, the neural correlates of spirituality on the brain. So she took a bunch of functional MRI scans of people uh, and they were being interviewed as the scans were running about uh, their spirituality and they were able to map that out. So there's a difference in her research. Um, what's interesting about what she says is that the, in terms of the classification of things, like there is a difference between spirituality and, and religion. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily the same thing. So religion carries a dogma to it that a lot of people really don't resonate with so much anymore. So I was, I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, and I got to say there were, there were some things about the, the way that things were organized within that church that just really never resonated with me. Like I didn't understand why my conduit to God would be through a man. How come women can't be, you know, I had all of these questions growing up as even as like a young child, it was, I don't understand the way that this is organized. Let me understand this. You want me to get into a box, a closed box with a man (laughs) across the screen. And you want me to tell him all the things that I've done wrong, right. As like a, as, as a young child, like, what is it that you think that I've done wrong? Right. So I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of struggle with the dogma involved in the Roman Catholic church growing up. And I understand that that may not be the uh, experience of other people. And that's, that's fine. You know, if you have a healthy relationship with the way that you conceive of there being something else outside of the world that we live in, then absolutely all the power to you. I'd never poo-poo on that. Um, spirituality is more, it's a little bit more abstract. People reported in her studies that they felt spiritual. They felt close interconnected to something that they felt as though they were a part of something bigger for example when they're in nature Mm -hmm. or if they're having a sit-down conversation with a friend over coffee and they feel really close to that person they might start seeing oh geez like there there is something kind of divine and every human being walking on this planet it's it's you know they, they get a sense that there is just something more there's something bigger so the two spirituality and religion aren't um classified the same way. I heard a a quote that I really like from, uh, I think it was Father Richard Rohr. So he's a, he was also raised Catholic, but he's a Christian uh, mystic. And so he talks about how spirituality is for people who have been through hell and religion is for people who are afraid of hell. (laughs) So there's almost something a little bit more, um, I guess just a little bit more neurotic about religion. Like if you're being threatened with the reality that you'll go to hell, if you're not a good person, right. That, that instills a sense of fear in everybody walking around. Oh, yeah. And for a spiritual person, they're like, why would you do that to yourself? 
you know, your God is supposed to be a loving, all-encompassing, you know, only they can judge you kind of thing. So why would you walk around the earth wondering whether or not you're going to hell? It's just, is that the way you want to spend your time? Yeah, no, you definitely know? spirituality and religion are not the same. I think the comparison I was making, though, is like you were saying, in the West, there isn't really any. So like people who are raised in any religion, like I don't know how other religions talk about death. I really don't. Um, mm-hmm. I can only speak to myself being raised Roman Catholic. I know the way yes. we talked about death, right? Um, yeah. But I know like, for example, with with me when I was a little kid, my understanding was like, okay, like, you know, the, that person's in heaven now. I'm sure other religions have something similar that, you know, they there's this belief of like, you know, it doesn't just mean the person's gone. And I think, right. I think religion sometimes can serve that that purpose of like giving some sort of like idea of like the the person's not just gone. Cause I think that's where there could be some, some confusion maybe with kids or even just like a hard time dealing with like, I guess the, the idea of like the meaning of life, like, what do you mean? Like their, their, their life is just over. Like they're just gone. So I don't know, like there's a lot of people who don't believe in any kind of life after death or you know, that this is it. I, I I don't know. Like how how do those people deal with grief? Is there grief? Like I don't know. Yeah, so many questions. Yeah, it's. I mean that that is kind of the the human the big human question that we get all the time, right? Is that whether or not whether or not you could be atheist and you're still going to think to yourself, what is the meaning of all of this? Right. That is a completely separate thing from spirituality or religion. Is it's the question of I have a human life and what does it what does it mean? Why am I here? Is this all just a symptom of, you know, evolution, just biology evolving over time? And now all of a sudden we've evolved to such an extent that we have meta metacognition, like we're aware of the fact that we're aware, right? It's not something that, as far as we know, that's not something that animal other animals have to exactly. deal with. It's just humans we've gotten to the point where we're aware of the fact that we have a consciousness do other animals have that kind of awareness like we're not we're not really sure and so that comes with a ton of questions just like what you're saying it's it's a question that we're really never going to have the answer to that question that's i always really liked listening to betty Waite and the way that she talks about death and her perspective on it because she was raised by a mom who had a what I would consider a pretty healthy outlook on, on death. And so, you know, someone would die in in the family or a friend would die and her mom would say to her, Oh, they know the secret. (laughs) They get it now, you know, now they know, and we still don't know, but they do. Right. So it's, um, it's just, it's a nature, a part, part and parcel of the fact that we're humans and we're aware of the fact that we have consciousness that's going to be a question that we all kind of grapple with. It's, it's that's my best, my best answer to that. I think that's the only answer to that is, and yeah. I, it's like when I start having these, these kinds of thoughts, sometimes I'll look at Mark and say like, man, I really understand ignorance is bliss. Like, yes. <laughs> because you could go yeah. in a total spiral of questions forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah. Um, on one hand, I love philosophy. On the other hand, I'm like, just stop with the questions. Mm-hmm. But you know what, though, I, 
in the researching that I've done, I've, and I, cause I listen to a lot of palliative care doctors and, and hospice doctors talk about this and other death doulas. There's a lot of great podcasts out there that, and actually there's a few Netflix shows that are really great too on the subject. Um, people have beliefs about all kinds of things, even if they don't have, um, proof, right. You've got beliefs over what's going to happen or where we're going to go or whatever. Um, even if your belief is that there's nothing after life, right. It's still a belief. We just don't know. We don't know. But when things get really tough is when our beliefs are tested and there is nothing, nothing else that is going to test us and our beliefs as with death. So people, people that have really strong convictions about what's going to happen after they die, those people that feel super strongly about it and they think they know the answer, they end up having sometimes, not not in every single case, but generally they end up having a hard time when they're looking at their own mortality towards the towards the end. Like if they're dealing with a situation where maybe they have a terminal illness diagnosis or something like that, all of a sudden they're like, shit, was I wrong? Like, do I really know where I'm going to go? And that's when all these questions start coming up for them. So my proposition is that we think about all of that stuff much sooner. And we kind of, we understand the limitations of the the beliefs that we have. And we soften into beliefs that we have that make us feel good, right? Just get really comfortable with the unknown. That has been the only thing that has really helped me is that I part of the reason why I struggled as much as I did after Mr. Fisher is because of, you know, I didn't always resonate with my Roman Catholic belief system. That's an understatement. I really didn't at all. But for better or worse, it was the only one that I had. I didn't consider anything else. So I I moved through through the world thinking that either hell or heaven awaited me. And it was all determined on the actions that I took during my life, whether or not I was a good person. And then at some point, some bigger thing would judge me over my actions and I'd get sorted like a filing system along with everybody else. But what happens if that doesn't happen? Right? What happens if we we don't know that? We just don't know. So people where there's where there's no answers to questions, people tend to get a vice grip onto the belief system that they have. And then they walk through the world with this ignorance is bliss sense that you talked about, but then that gets tested at the end of life. So I think the answer to that is just hold it with a softness. Like don't, you know, you don't have to vice grip your belief system. When someone brings up other possibilities for other ways that you could look at what's going to happen, have a tolerance to that. It'll make you more resilient in the end. Yeah. I think so. I'm like you said, there's, I'm not going to know the secret until it's my turn to know the secret. <laughs> until That's then, right. all things are equally possible. None of it's possible could be something we mm-hmm. hadn't even thought about. You know, I, I have a close friend who talks to me about past lives. And you know, is, is that possible? Have I been here before? Have I done the like, I don't mm-hmm. know, all of it's yeah. possible, and maybe none of it's possible. Who knows? I mean, there's there. The thing is that there's all kinds of really interesting research happening with uh, death. We just don't talk about it that often because, again, culturally, we're not taught. We're not taught. We're not trained to consider death until you know until there is an acute moment where we have to deal with it. But there is some interesting research happening uh, um, in the states. I know of what was his name? 
I have it in my phone. Just give me a second here in case anybody wants to Google him. So there's a Bruce Grayson who is with the Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences uh, with the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. They're studying near-death experiences. And what's interesting about this, as with Lisa Miller's work, she's the the one that I mentioned that pointed a, uh, a scientific lens at spirituality, right? When she first uh, devised a plan to study spirituality through science, she got laughed at because every scientist in the room was like, good luck. Like, how are you going to, how are you going to study something that fluffy, right? How are you going to find a, a way to isolate variables and, and study that in a meaningful way um, where it's, you know, reliable and, and, uh, and, and, you know, you have a good sense of what's actually going on. You know, it's as close to a truth as you can get through science, but how are you going to find a way to study something that fluffy and soft? And so she got laughed at. So when people think of studying near-death experiences, they're like, wait, what? That's something that we're looking at? How is that possible? And I've actually, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because I have noticed in uh, in massage therapy that there's a lot of emphasis being placed right now on evidence-based practice. And I believe in that. We we do need to update our standards with evidence-based practice, but I think that some people get really absolutist with that. There's a difference between having a scientific lens, believing in science, and then believing in scientism. Like one of them does not allow you to be flexible with the kinds of questions, right? And in, in one of them, people scoff at anecdotes. Yeah. Ah, that doesn't mean anything that's anecdotal. Every scientific experiment that has ever been conducted started with. I know. Exactly. We we have this discussion all the time about the the absolutes that people, you know, there's one study and it might be a great study and it might have been very well designed and, you know, double blind and peer reviewed and all of and it could be fantastic. But it's one Mm -hmm. study and then everything else gets thrown out the window if it does not align with this one study. And it is a pet peeve of mine as well, because I'm like, well, that's just not science. That's not looking at things through a scientific lens. That's taking one, one study and deciding that is, that is the gold standard for which I am going to base my entire practice around. And everything else that has existed for 1000s of years, I'm going to throw out the window because it doesn't mm. have that one study. So right. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, definitely I also am with you. I agree that evidence, evidence-informed, evidence-based practice is very important. Mm-hmm. But we need to also make sure that we understand the difference between, what did you call it? Uh, looking at something through a scientific lens and sci- scientism. 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 Yeah. I have not heard yeah. that before, but I like it. Yeah, I borrowed that from Lisa Miller because she talks about it too. Uh, she did a podcast with uh, Rich Roll, and she talks about how when she was proposing her research, there was the scientism group that laughed at her. And then there were the scientists that were like, eh, that's interesting. Might not know how you're going to develop that yet, but, you know, go do it. 
go ahead, do it. Try to try to figure it out. You might as well. I think scientists should be very excited and open to the idea of somebody studying something like spirituality, because there's a lot of things that get thrown out the window or scoffed at by science because they either haven't been studied or nobody has figured out how to study them. So for me, this would be this would be exciting, like because I I would be the same way. Like, how on earth are you planning to develop a study? that study spirituality or near death experiences like they it sounds wildly crazy but my curiosity would be like let's see what you got versus like there's no way you can do that mm-hmm. absolutely so we do know um based on the research that's happening at the university of virginia i think i said it was charlottesville um there is a pattern that they found cuz that's the tricky thing with near death experiences is that it's all anecdotes, right? This person that you're interviewing that is describing their near-death experience is one out of millions of people that have experienced something like that, but you're never going to be able to, it's just impossible to isolate uh, really any variable involved in involved in their experience. The tricky thing is, is that in a lot of these cases, uh, we'll we'll give you the example of someone going through a surgery where they flatline in the middle of the surgery. So they're they're dead, right? They they die when you flatline, you're dead. Yeah. Um, and then you might get brought back if you're lucky. But the way that medicine has looked at the brain and consciousness is that you have consciousness as long as the brain is working, right? But what happens in these near death near death experiences is that the brain has stopped working. So where did your conscious, how is it possible that these people can describe the experience of flatlining, leaving their body, hovering over top of the surgical space, being able to describe the conversations that are happening in the room as the doctors are trying to revive them? It's just, and a lot of these doctors, they're just like, I can't explain this. I've got no idea. How is this possible? This person died, but somehow... There, you know, there's something going on with it that we don't know yet. And I know that the science, the people that believe in scientism, they would hear this conversation. They would go, ah, man, you guys are, you guys are some gullible, you know, there's some like conspiracy theory level shit that you're talking about right now. But there are, like I said, thousands, millions of anecdotes of people. And it's not dependent on culture. This is one of these things where this is an innately human experience does not depend on culture. Yeah. And that's what this doctor has been able to identify here. Wait, let me pull up the, again, I was looking at this list earlier in the day and jotted some notes and it's not just them. It's uh, Mary Neal, MD in the States, Peter Fenwick at the, he's a neuropsychiatrist at the University of Cambridge. You know, this is being studied globally. So it's not like there's no reason to look at it. There's plenty of reason to look at this. There's something going on. We just don't know yet. But they have been able to identify some patterns, at least across all of these anecdotes. So um, what they found is really mainly three things that are in common across all of these stories, okay? These experiences, these near-death experiences, there's three common things that happen. So first, the sense of time is distorted. A person comes back from their near-death experience and they're like, geez, that could have been 30 years or it could have been five minutes. I've got no idea how long I was there for. No idea. Wow. 
And then there's a second, a warm, loving energy. All of them describe either a colorful ball of energy that they were absorbed by or, you know, being hugged and held by someone that kind of might not be able to identify them as a human being, but they feel like motherly or fatherly. Like there is a sense that you're being held by something that, you know, you're like a little kid again and you just have that warm, loving energy around you. That's common across all of the near-death experiences. And then the last one is your ordinary senses become extremely vivid. Your sense of perception becomes almost psychedelic in a way. And that's where that's where the use of psychedelics in uh, near or uh, when a person's dealing with their own mortality, if they have a terminal illness or something like that, there's plenty of clinical trials going on right now where they're uh, dosing people with psychedelics like psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, um, to try to help them make sense of their experience as they're dying. They might have some, a lot of uh, ex uh, existential fear that they're trying to deal with, and they understand that death is coming, they can't escape it, and they're trying to make their peace with it. There are definitely clinical, and the thing is that the results of these clinical trials are really quite astonishing. And what's interesting, and what I've noticed across the two spheres of uh, science studying these two different things is the way that the people that have undergone a near-death experience describing how their sense of perception, their uh, sensory system has become so much more vivid. They feel like they can perceive of many much more. Like there's a ton of detail going on that we miss all the time because we are confined by our sensory system. But people that go through near-death experiences are like, whoa, there is way more out there. Like I was able to perceive a lot more information, right? That we just can't because we're stuck in our bodies. Mm. And that's that's what people that uh, have taken these psych psychedelics, that's a common experience that they have too, is like, whoa, like I, you know, I heard color. How is it possible to hear color? I didn't know that I could do that. And it sounds scary, but... I mean, I, I, I've never taken a psychedelic of any kind. I, I, I am way too neurotic for that kind of an experience. Um, but it sounds, it sounds like it's a beautiful experience for a lot of these people, right? They're suddenly able to feel like there is more out there. And I just had a tiny glimpse of it through taking this, this medication and that's the interesting interesting thing too, uh, culturally speaking, is that we have, again, we have a very antiseptic way of looking at what we call drugs. But in uh, cultures, indigenous cultures, where they have access to psychedelics by virtue of the fact that it is a plant, right? And it mm -hmm. exists in their environment. They pick it to consume it, create a ceremony around it. And it becomes something where you know, it's considered medicine. It's referred to as medicine. It has always been referred to as medicine. But if you take a person from the West and, you know, give them, you know, they, they say they just want to have a trip or something, you know, there's a, a way to recreationally use psychedelics that I would not, I would not think, don't do that. It's just not a good idea. There's not enough control in my opinion over that. You'd have a set and setting is incredibly important for that kind of thing. And, you know, an indigenous person looking at, you know, someone who's completely out of context for the cultural that for the culture that they're existing in where something like peyote is uh, available, 
right? You just, you don't have the context to take that psychedelic. So the experience is going to be really different. And they wouldn't call that medicine at that point. At that point, it's a drug, right? It's not, it's not used the same way. There's not as much reverence for it as there would be in a, in a culture that's different from ours. But I am really happy that there's clinical trials around it. Yeah. It's it's just also interesting to me, like as you're talking about these near death experiences or the people, uh, you know, using psychedelics as medicine and having these experiences like, I mean, whether you are a scientist or you uh, practice scientism or whatever it is, everybody can at least agree that, I mean, everything is made up of energy and you're talking about human consciousness. And it's like when a person dies, even if it's just for a matter of minutes or split seconds or whatever, like, where does that energy go? Where's that consciousness? Like, it's not just gone. It doesn't just like dissipate poof into thin air there. So I, you know, I would be very interested to read now I'm going to Google all this stuff after we talk, but very interested to read what, what people's experiences are and what they're saying is happening because they're, their consciousness and their physical body, like these are not, these are not the same thing. There's something there that, you know, apparently floats over your body and you can, you can hear what everybody's saying about you. That could be a powerful tool. <laughs> we do know based on uh, science that hearing is the last uh, uh, sensory perception that we have before we pass away. So, uh, you know, if you're in a room with uh, a loved one or a friend who's who's dying hearing is the last thing that they still can perceive before they die so it's uh I, yeah it's 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 just one of those things where the way that we perceive the world is really based on the context in which we're existing in our body and if you tweak your brain's chemistry then through something like a psychedelic then you're better able to maybe pick out the detail in our daily experience that we we just we don't see on an average day right so then the argument is uh you know are those things actually there <laughs> or are they not and that's 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 the the tricky part and actually i would argue that it doesn't really matter that much because if a person walks away from that experience feeling like they are one with everything then that's more important than anything else so yeah I'm really, I'm really happy to hear that though. Hearing, I didn't know that, but I think we all, I think we all think that way because when someone is dying, we tend to continue to talk to them, but I'm happy to hear that because Mark did sit and talk to his dad the entire time he was in the hospital. And about an hour before he passed away, we had the girls call him and talk to him. So mm, good to beautiful. know that he heard them. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. So you specifically, I understand, you know, from your, your whole backstory, how you became interested in death, but I still need to understand how you go from having a master's in <laughs> archaeology to deciding I'm going to be a massage therapist. There's some piece that I'm missing here. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's, it is kind of a super big, long story. Um, there were, I went through a series of life events when I was moving through my master's degree that made it uh, difficult to continue. I did graduate with my master's degree and I did work as an archaeologist for the province of New Brunswick for uh, a while before I decided to to quit, but I had gotten to this pivotal moment in my life where I was like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm in line with my purpose 
anymore. Archaeology was really interesting. I There are parts of that career that I do miss. I miss the adventure of it. I got to travel a lot. I did work in Belize. I visited Guatemala. I did work all over the province. I was invited uh, to work in Poland. I didn't end up going, but there was a lot of adventure involved in that career. Um, but when you're working in a province like New Brunswick, I mean, we just have snow for such a long time in the year we can, you know, the ground freezes around November and then it isn't until really maybe mid to late May that you can resume any kind of excavation. And that was always my favorite part. So then we just, we become desk workers the rest of the time. And, and, you know, we do analyze and write up a lot of research and that sort of thing uh, in the quiet, you know, snowy months, but I was the collections curator for the province. Um, I sat in a dark room with 300, I can't remember if it was 100,000 artifacts or 300,000 artifacts right now in this moment, because it's been a while, it's been since 2015 that I've thought of that, but I just felt disconnected. I felt disconnected from people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't, I felt that I had more in me that I could bring to the table that would help serve humanity in a way that I just wasn't feeling anymore. Um, You obviously don't get a master's degree in something unless you really like the subject material, but there's a huge difference between researching a subject and then performing the everyday tasks involved yeah, with well, that especially career. Especially because the the biggest part of your love for anthropology, archaeology, all of it was humanity. And so if your mm-hmm. job is sitting behind a desk and not dealing with humanity whatsoever, then yeah, I can see where there's a disconnect. Yeah. And all of this obviously helped you into, you know, really getting into this death doula training that you've done over the last couple of years, right? It's yeah. made you recognize that you can now incorporate this into your bodywork practice and mm-hmm. and you're teaching other people. Right. Exactly. And having the kinds of conversations that for me really enrich my life because I think I think people have this I think people that haven't um really considered death and really integrated um everything that that means into their bodies and their minds. I think they think that I that the kind of life that I would live is kind of bleak. Like I'm thinking about death every day. How is she not depressed? Right. I, I just, and that has not been my experience at all. Ever since I started studying cultures and the different perspectives that we have on both life and death, that's always something that I want to go back to is that people think that, you know, because I'm a death care worker that I exclusively deal in death. I deal in both. Right. I look at, how can I help this person feel as alive as they possibly can, even if they're close to their own death? Yeah. That is one of the most satisfying parts of this uh, field of, you know, this profession is like, we don't think about this stuff. We don't think about, there's a giant difference between dying and death. Like in death, that that's, you know, you're, you're gone. You've passed away. There's nothing else. But we have a tendency to we have a tendency to think of the dying as in a sense as already being already being dead right you're starting to detach in in different ways and the what scares me now about 
the possibility or not the possibility, but of my own death and the possible ways that I might experience that is not anymore the fact that I'm going to die at some point. My hangups are now around vitality. I I don't want to keep living anymore if my vitality is taken away from me, right? I don't want to be strapped to a bed. Uh, I don't want to be um, kept alive by machines. I would prefer that you let me go at that point because my sense of vitality is gone. And that's, it's just in the way that we define, a lot of people end up dying in the way that they lived. Like if, if, if one of the things that you love the most about living is, for example, nature, I absolutely love nature. Then if you're telling me that I have, for example, cancer and that I'm going to be bedridden for possibly months before I die, you better bring as much nature as you possibly can into that room with me because otherwise I will be miserable. Mm-hmm. I want you to bring in grass. I want you to bring in rainwater. I want you to, if it's snowing outside, bring me a snowball. Just help me feel like I'm still alive while I'm laying there. Mm-hmm. And then once that's, you know, once I can't um, be a part of that anymore, then that's preferably I would as with my grandfather, when he was sure about when he finally wanted to, you know, stop living, that would be, at least in the way that I see my life right now as a 35-year-old, that would be when I would want to to go. So, you know, it's not always bleak. Like, there's, it's bittersweet for sure. But when people are face-to-face with their own mortality, they get really excited about telling you about their favorite parts of being alive. And you get to hear those stories, right? You get really intimately close with people. Uh, In in my case, I I kind of wish that I had have gotten my uh, death doula training in advance of the pandemic. That has been a really big uh, thorn in my plan because because of COVID, everything shut down, right? You're not able to go in and, and just work with people, it's really limited to, or at least for a long time, it was really limited to just family members and, and the care team, the medical team, and that that's it. Right. So I have a limited amount of uh, experience with actual individuals, but I've been to, there's things called death cafes uh, where people it's a, it is a global movement and it's, it's gaining in popularity all the time. So if you're and a death cafe welcomes everybody. You don't have to have a terminal illness. You don't have to be a family member in grief. You can be an ordinary person off the street. If I hadn't known that this thing existed when I was a teenager, I would have gone to one so that I could sit with people and chit chat about existentialism and mortality and life and and what it all means and you know wax poetic about just humanity and um, how, you know, we have this big thing all in common that we don't talk about. And it, you know, how is, how, why is that the plan? Like, why are we not talking about death in a bigger way? I do want to know what you think of medically assisted death. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you why I bring this up. Yes. I was listening to the radio maybe three weeks ago. And there was a lot of talk on this particular talk radio station about soldiers and PTSD. And a lot of them were being encouraged to seek out medically assisted death. Mm-hmm. I know what you're referring to. That ended up 
that ended up being a, a real big uh, fiasco. And actually the person, because I think it was uh, an employee of the federal government, I think they were working with uh, veterans and like some sort of a veterans affairs yes. capacity. Yes. And that person was recommending to veterans that they seek uh, medical assistance in dying. Yes. And that person ended up getting fired. Um, they They shouldn't have been doing that uh that's that's completely completely inappropriate um and actually as far as i understand it and you might have to fact check me on this one because it's been a while since i looked at that i I know what you're referring to exactly it was all over reddit Mm -hmm. um i think they might have actually tied a, a death or two i can't remember how many um to that specific person uh, suggesting that, you know, these veterans are, might be better off dead, right? That's an extremely inappropriate and it gives, uh, medical assistance and death, uh, a bad rap because now people are identifying made with what this government official said, right. and it was really out of turn. So there are, there's a, 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 just a massive amount of standards and protocols around, uh, offering, medical assistance in dying to someone you have to meet a certain criteria and uh in this moment in time i don't specifically know what that criteria is i can't uh think of it off the top of my head but it it will probably be something that i talk about in at the conference uh later but there is a protocol and it is way more stringent than uh what that government official did with those veterans it's really that was really inappropriate um, generally I believe in dying with dignity and I believe that we should have agency over that. Um, I don't believe in the government telling you what to do with your body generally. Um, so whether that's abortion or, uh, you know, or made, I just don't think that, you know, just hands off my body, like allow me to make my decisions the way that it feels best for me. And uh, actually made is, you know, we're, we're able to, in the face of death, when you know that you're going to suffer a great deal, it is a, in my mind, a compassionate act, a compassionate offering that we could give someone. Is this a tricky conversation? Of course it is. Because then you overlap people's beliefs around uh dying by it's I'm going to use the word only because this is how some people see made it's not you know language is important around death and dying and so I I never use this term in the context of a doctor providing made but some people out there consider it a form of suicide Mm -hmm. and because there's all of this uh you know for example religious teaching around you know that's not that is a bad thing to do it's going to put you on God's shit list. And, you know, you don't want to go out that way. It's a sin, right? We we cast all of these judgments around death and the way that it comes up. And sometimes it's not uh, necessarily beneficial to people, right? If a person is suffering with pancreatic cancer, that's a tough one. That happens to be a diagnosis that ends up being, there's a lot of pain involved in um, in a pancreatic cancer and people like, I would say it like this, 
where there is an option, at least a person can make the decision that's based best for them based on their own views on the subject. I'm okay with there being an option for people. Uh, I'd, I'd never suggest it to someone, you know, it's just not, it's not my place. A, a death doula is a, a non-medical care and support provider for people dealing with uh, death and dying and how to live as best as they can as they approach death. So, you know, we might get asked questions about, you know, what our thoughts are on made, but oftentimes what happens is when people ask me a question about something like that, I, I turn it back around on them. I go, well, what do you think? Right. Because a people, a person's invitation for you to talk about a subject often comes up because they feel like they need to talk about that subject. And then I just turn it around and, you know, I do the same thing in my clinical practice as a massage therapist. When a person asks me a, uh, you know, a, a tricky question, <laughs> just like, oh, you know, I never really considered that. What do you think? <laughs> and they ended up talking about it in depth because they just needed a platform to voice their opinions on something or to soundboard an idea. Have you already incorporated your death doula training into your clinical practice or are these two separate things right now? So I have to a degree, I want to be able to do it with um, a little bit more intention in, in 2023. That's kind of the goal for this year, because things are opening up a little bit more in terms of uh, protocols around COVID and that sort of thing. So I, I have a little bit more wiggle room to work with now. I have reached out to the hospice and um, looks like we are going to be working together uh, in some capacity. We just have to outline that. But I guess the reason why I feel like this work is as important as it is, is because we all already work in death care. We just don't realize that we are, right? So you might have already had clients that have come in saying, my dad's got terminal cancer. I don't know how to feel about it. You're already doing that work. Right? That that's the that's the hard part is that death touches literally all of us. So in some way or another, all of us are doing this work. And for me as a clinician, I would much rather come with an appropriate amount of education around how to respond, what not to say, what resources I can offer them. Um you know, if if maybe I get the sense that their family would be open to working with a death doula, then I can offer that because I'm trained as a death doula. Mm-hmm. Right. So every single one of us is working as uh maybe not intentionally, maybe not with a lot of uh knowledge on the subject, but because death is true to every single human, we're already working in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd rather just come with a really big toolkit. Than nothing at all. What I, I want to do, Ashley, is give you the opportunity to let people know without giving away the course, of course, but uh, what it is that you're going to be teaching at the Canadian Massage Conference in Halifax in June. And also, if people uh, want to either get in touch with you or follow you on socials, maybe to give out some contact information. Uh, so what I'm doing at the conference in, in June is I'm blending uh, my background as a a uh, formally trained anthropologist uh, and all of the knowledge that I've accumulated around uh, death and dying through that perspective, that field of study. 
um, blending it with what I've learned in massage therapy and contextualizing it in the biomedical model that we exist in. Cause we, we didn't even have the opportunity to get into this. And again, I mentioned that I could talk about this for literally hours. So we exist in a biomedical model um, in healthcare right now. So the, the crux of the problem of health is a disease. That's the way that we've organized our healthcare system. And as massage therapists, that's what we operate in. But now there's all this talk about um, more in talking about pain specifically, but our experiences as, as humans is always biopsychosocial, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if we know that, how do we line that up with a medical biomedical model um, while also not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? And considering that a whole person has a multifactorial makeup of, of what makes them healthy, right? So considering things like spirituality, considering things like psychology, uh, socioeconomic stat, all of those things uh, overlay in a person's experience of death and dying. Um, and just giving massage therapists the tools that they need to understand the context of all of that so that they can have a better therapeutic relationship with the clients that they're that they're meeting with. I've had lots of massage therapists come to me and, and say things like, um, God, I just, I didn't know what to think. I had a client that came in, they, they told me that they got a recent neurodegenerative diagnosis. They have ALS and now they're talking to me crying on my table about how their whole life is going to be ripped apart and, you know, they're going to lose their ability to walk and talk. And, you know, it's, what do I say? You know, people aren't prepared for those kinds of conversations. So what I'm hoping to provide massage therapists is here's how you do that. Mm-hmm. Here's how you support when a person's life is crumbling apart in front of you. And, you know, I understand that, uh, you know, there's certain elements of that that is out of our scope of practice. Mm, I was going to ask. Right. But if you're, if you're not sensitive to the way that you can have that, you know, what's, what's the alternative? Like you're just going to sit there quietly with a dumbstruck look on your face. <laughs> You know, that, that makes a person feel incredibly isolated. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask you because you, you, you mentioned that you do a combination with the massage therapy and the death doula. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you this, if your governing body wrote you a letter and said, you can't do this anymore. You're really outside of scope of practice on this. Would you change what you're doing or would you be like, fuck off? Well, I've, I know I've considered this a lot myself, worst case scenario, um, you know, to abide by regulations and laws and things like that, I could separate the two practices, um, and work as a death doula and a massage therapist separately. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, (laughs) is that when we we have hard conversations in our rooms all the time with our clients right and and i because our clients experience of their health is is biopsychosocial mm-hmm. for us to be completely separated from common humanity <laughs> and to just be a buttoned up clinician that doesn't 
end up having a, a maybe a conversation with our client that might, you know, get into some sensitive territory. I just, I don't know that you're helping that person at that point. You know, a lot of clients come in and say that they're there because they need to talk. The massage therapy is secondary. And of course, I tell every single one of them, I'm not a mental health expert. I can't provide you with for formal mental health expertise. I, it's not within my scope of practice. Here's a list of resources that I could give you. Seek that kind of, you know, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever, you know, right. seek that from somebody else. But if you want a human to talk to, I don't mind doing that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I think if we're all being real, that's just the way that a lot of our practices go. I don't, I haven't talked to a single massage therapist that 110% of the time when someone comes in and starts sharing some really tender information that they shut that whole conversation down. How is that beneficial? Especially in a healthcare system where there is limited access to support. Yeah. Right. The one of my clients came in the other day, they were told that they have to wait six months. They were approved by their insurance company to talk with a psychologist and that's it. They can't talk to a counselor. Uh, well, they can, but it won't be covered right. by their insurance. They have to wait six months. They need help right now. What's the plan, guys? So I, so that's when I tell them, like, you can you can talk to me, but I can't. I, I'm not going to be able to, you know, help you reconfigure or reframe the way that you're looking at these things. But if you want a conversation, I, I can hold space for that. Mm. You know, I, you know, whether or not the regulatory body would uh, disagree with my philosophy on on that providing that kind of level of care. And there's a difference between, I don't know. I just think it's the more compassionate thing to do. It's just mm -hmm. the more empathic thing to do. I don't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people go out there and break rules and regulations and that sort of thing. Always, always talk about your scope of practice and what's in it and what's outside of it. Um, but then the way that you tailor your practice to feel like you, mm -hmm. you know, make it your own. Every, every one of us therapists has our own way of treating our clients. And mine is, I'm a human, you're a human. Being a human is hard. If you want to talk to me about human stuff, I'm okay with that. Makes sense. And here's a massage. And here's a massage. <laughs> what about uh, contact information, Ashley? There might be some people mm -hmm. who want to follow you um, if you want to give out socials or if you have a website or anything like that. For sure, yep. The website is uh, in the works right now. It's not live yet, but it's coming. So it's just going to be ashleybrzicki.ca. So it's Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-R-Z-E-Z-I-C-K-I.com. Uh, or .ca, either one of them will bring you to the, the right spot. Um, my name on Instagram is ash.rmt.deathdoula. Uh, and then I, I've decided to re revamp my Facebook. Again, I am going to be developing a, a business page for that. So I will be on Facebook. It's not live yet, but it's coming. It's coming. And so my website as well, like I'll have, have eBooks up there. Um, uh, course information because I'm in the middle of developing a, a course as well. A lot of this, really, a lot of the the treatment stuff, it, it's not really any different than 
what massage therapy, you know, I'm going to be incorporating a lot of stuff having to do with, uh, senses and, um, some, um, vagus nerve stuff and that sort of thing, just to help a person. Cause a lot of the, the trouble that a person experiences towards the end of their life is feeling panic, mm-hmm. uh, or family members feeling panicked about things. And then, so a lot of the, the, you know, vigorous treatment at the end of life is just, why would you do that to a person? They're already overly heightened and overstimulated. So a lot of the work is just providing soothing kind of care. Um, and a lot of us are, are already, uh, trained in that, right? So really what well, I'll provide review and get into some stuff, but really the, the, the tougher part of the course that I want to provide is the contextualization around, uh, communication, how to communicate with a person that is facing this kind of thing. Cause it's a, you know, this, it's a specific subset of the population that you would be working with, but eventually it is everybody, right? So it's, in my view, it's important work because if you haven't done the contemplative aspect of considering your own mortality, uh, you know, um, doing what you can with it, integrating it into your knowledge base so that you can live your life to its very fullest, because at the end of the day, that's that's what it's about. You You really... When you're aware that life has a finality to it, you're able to live life to its fullest a little bit. Like these mundane moments in your everyday life feel a little bit more precious because you know that there's a finality to them. Um, and those are those are big subjects. You know, people don't know how to talk about that kind of thing because we're not given the the space or the opportunity to talk about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a cultural problem. It's a societal problem, and it's you know a symptom of the way that we've organized healthcare as well. We used to be much more closer to death uh, way back when. And then the industrialization of the healthcare system came along. And now all of a sudden death is other people's professions. It's the funeral director. It's the doctor. It's the nurse. It's the social worker. Those people deal with death, but not me. Right. And that's not, that's not the way that it used to that it used to be, you know, houses. I talked about this in a completely different uh, on Connor's podcast. I talked about how there's there used to be a part of a home called the the coffin door that used to be built in to the way that we the way that we built homes. That used to have to have a coffin door to accommodate the fact that at some point you would be carrying after a body in your own home. But then the industrialization of the healthcare system came. And now you don't have to deal with that in your own home. You know, that part is someone's job, right? And because of that, we're just, we don't have the kind of practice that we used to have around, around this sort of thing. It's, it's been kind of taken away from us. And some people that I think maybe some people that are afraid of death think that, thank God, I don't have to deal with that. But I would argue that we're less resilient now though, because we haven't had the opportunity to look at this, not in the same way that we used to. Mm-hmm. And not the same way that a lot of cultures do. So that's what I'll be talking about. Well, I appreciate the the conversation today. I was about to say this morning again because it's still morning to me, <laughs> even though it's after two. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the stuff you're going to teach us at the conference in June and seeing, you know, what you're going to be offering this year. I know, as you said, you're revamping your website, you're getting that up and running, revamping your Facebook page. Um, I see a lot of good things coming from Ashley this year and 
I think it is an important conversation because as you said, no matter what, if you're working with people in any profession, if you're working with people, everybody is touched by death at some point and it, it shouldn't really be a conversation that we are afraid to have. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you are so open and willing to talk to us about it. And I'm excited to see you in person in June. We've only ever met through screens. Can't wait. I cannot wait. We'll have to go out for a drink or something and chit chat. East Coast, we have to. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Oh, I have to do it. Well, Mark says you guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists and a Microphone. <gasps> Peace.